as a helicopter pilot, and this was going to be the final ultimate gesture. And he had a vision, really, I think, of all looking down as he left, went into the sky on this helicopter, looking down and seeing all the nonplussed policemen looking up as, as he disappeared. And this was really going to be his way of bringing them into his, into his movie. So he was going to reverse the whole format of the chase. Well, in fact, after he made this television broadcast, 20 minutes after the broadcast, he was going down the Bayshore Freeway south of uh, San Francisco, and a group of FBI agents saw him in this panel truck. And there was a great debate at the time over whether or not they actually had known where he was all the time and had just followed him as soon as the TV show was broadcast. And, and arrested him. Because they were also, you mean, might have been playing roles in, yeah. this, in this movie. But in fact, though, funny. it turned out that they were, it just, it just, this just came out this year, that they had been in a carpool. They were going home during the rush hour, and suddenly one of them looks over and says, that's Ken Kesey <laughs> in, in the panel truck over there. Well, Kesey had just taken off his only disguise that he had, which was a cowboy <laughs> hat and a pair of dark glasses. It was such a nice day, he was going to get a little sun. And that got him. And they, so then they, they motioned for them to pull over the side of the road. And they knew they couldn't, uh, Kesey and his friend, uh, the Hassler, knew they, he, they couldn't outrun them. So they pulled over, and there was a big chase, and they caught him. So it was accidental, that thing? The actual, the, the arrest was accidental. Well, you know, this yeah. reminds me a lot of uh, several uh, books on the FBI and ca the capturing of Dillinger. Again, the whole, uh, despite, uh, Dillinger was captured despite the FBI. <laughs> and they, they wouldn't tell the Chicago cops about it, you know. And the Chicago cops were suspicious, were called by the box office, uh, ma uh, the manager of the theater, the biograph, where Dillinger was in the movie with the two women, one of whom betrayed him. And uh, the FBI guys were seated around in cars lurking. And he thought they were crooks. He called the cops. Chicago cops almost shot him. <laughs> and so you have the same thing here. So accidentally, I think just as an example of Tom Wolfe's writing, a part of this chase, it goes on for pages, the cops and robbers game, his friend Hassler, uh, Kesey's friend Hassler was driving. Hassler driving, vaguely aware of the cars floating by on the rush hour. Shiny hulls with so many shaved globes sticking up inside. Casey, Suddenly coming up on his left, Hassler sees a car full of shiny haircut faces, jammed full of them, all staring at them. Hassler and Kesey. And our gray Alumicron arms flapping out of the window, stabbing and motioning, pull over, much grimacing and shouting soundlessly into the slipstream of the rush hour, and one with his wallet dangling out the window, flapping his badge at them. Run, split, vanish, but there's no place to vanish to. It is all clear in a flash, trapped in the rush hour for a start, and the panel truck can't outrun their sedan anyway. Opposite side, pick off. Hassler tries to squeeze between cars and lose them that way, like a basketball player, but it's no use. The cops keep floating abreast, grimacing and flapping and drifting back and pulling even again. There! Kesey motions to the shoulder of the expressway by an embankment. Hassler cuts over there, skids to a stop. Thrash! Kesey out of the door, plunges over the guardrail and down the embankment with the dust flying. Hassler just sits there. The sedan skids to a stop in front of him, cutting him off. Seems like 20 doors fly open, haircut faces and gray alumicron bodies popping out in every direction, leaping over the guardrail. 
all in shiny black shoes. One orders Hassler out of the panel truck. Hassler gets out and sits down on the edge of the freeway. Very strange. The great swarm of cars with hard candy tails keep sailing past hypnotically. Hassler gets into a lotus position, sitting cross-legged on the asphalt, looking straight ahead. Three sets of shiny black FBI shoes standing around him now. They all have these shiny black shoes on. And one of them goes back to the sedan, comes back with a flare gun, and stands over him with that. And Hassler wonders if he needs to shoot him with a flare. A very day-glow death. Here again, the takeoff on the colors. <laughs> and Fred Soul, the causal body, ablation, Upanishads, Krishnamurti, the karmic vestiture of the soul, the nirvanic consciousness. It all runs together right here like a tin stew. And Hassler isn't even high. On the other side of the expressway, on the edge of the bay, great fat seagulls are wheeling in the air in a great weird O pattern, coasting down below the level of the highway, then struggling up, dripping garbage out of their gullets, but a nice pattern all in all. Is that the visitation drain? Visitation the drain. The visitation yeah. drain. It's the visitation drain they, they've picked to work out their karma in. Ah, we're synced up this afternoon, and the gulls wax fat, gulping garbage at the drain, and grease a flat, a, a slippery fat O in the sky, and a curse to Hassler that today is his 27th birthday. And the last paragraph of what I think is this marvelous capturing of this crazy nutty moment by Tom Wolfe in this Cops and Robbers game, the capture of Kesey by the cops. Skidding down the embankment, chalking up dust like on a western, the blur of the drain flats, out beyond, oh, out beyond, out beyond. And Kesey vaults over an erosion fence at the bottom of the embankment. Rip! A picket catches his pants in the crotch and rips out the inseams of both pants legs, most neatly flapping on his legs like low-rent cowboy chaps, running, flapping through the visitation flats, poor, petered out, uh, marginal housing development, last blasted edge of land you can build houses on before they just sink into the ooze in the compost store, poor visitation drain kids playing ball on the last street before the ooze runs flapping through their ball game, stare at him. And here again, by the way, a Wolfian writing, which many phrases, images, all doesn't worry about punctuation. And you get the whole image of what this represents, even background, too. And at the ghost on my heels, like the whole world turned into an endless kid's ball game, on the edge of the ooze, thousands of drain kids furling toward the horizon like an urchin funnel. And that alomicron, alomicron blur behind me, Shiny black shoes, tusking up behind him, stops stock still in the visitation drain, and gotcha in the cops and robbers game. <laughs> more, more, it has that quality. I'm going to let you do these books on tape. I think <laughs> By the way, uh, this is not uh, out of line at all. Uh, your, your, your writing is great for leading, uh, you know, reading out loud. It is. It's marvelous for out loud reading. Has that occurred to you? Uh, you know, I... I when I write, particularly a passage like this, when I'm trying to get the atmosphere of a of a key moment in the thing, I really try to put myself into a kind of controlled trance. And it's like method acting. That's the only thing I can think of, possibly, although well, I've never done method acting, but the idea of trying to put yourself into somebody else's skin. And often, you've got to get rid of punctuation. And at the same time, because that can, can really, you can, it's like nails to hang your clothes, I mean, that catch your clothes on sometimes. Um, at the same time, you've got to, it's got to be 
either a spoken rhythm or the kind of rhythm people think in. It seems to me, at least that's the way I work. Mm -hmm. And I never, I never do it out loud. In fact, I was very interested to hear it done out loud. I've never heard it done out loud before, uh, just to see uh, what the what the rhythms are like. A couple, there's one or two places in there I see I could have actually I could have improved the uh, the rhythms. Other places I liked it. Uh, but you see, what, that's precisely the point of your writing, of Tom Wolfe's writing, is that it's as though you were talking. It's, it's not a question of putting writing on a piece of paper. And that's what I meant earlier why, why your writing jumps off the page. It's as though we hear someone telling a story, but he's not telling it through another medium, the pen or the typewriter. He himself is talking it, you see. And this would, of course, make it so exciting. You capture it there. So it is for out loud. And sometimes there's a, there's a, there's a language of thought. I don't know how to express this, but I know that a lot of the language we think in at the moment, not when we're trying to think up a sentence, is very abrupt. That's why I threw in these abrupt sound effects and and just sort of things that are really thoughts, like gotcha. It wasn't really said, of but... Of course. But uh, the, the spirit of it, the rip of the path, but gotcha is, said this, at the very end. This yeah. is sort of the, that mental language. I think in most cases, when we're thinking just right off the top of the head, right into the middle of a situation, uh, God knows we don't think in whole sentences. We, th we tend to think more in, in bursts or yes, no. And, and you, you sort of sigh saying, yes, no, God, yeah. And it's, it's like that. And I, there's, I don't think there's enough of that in in writing it, Joyce uh, Joyce pointed away to a lot of things uh, in a way I think Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake books like that are great books of wallpaper samples that every writer ought to look at uh, in a way it's a little boring or not boring it becomes tedious to read Joyce at a long stretch but it's all there there, there are a lot of things there that you can draw I, I, I haven't I've never gone to Joyce to, uh, specifically for any techniques, but it's but there. there are all these things are there, and they're not used. So it's they're, more, they're than, possible they're more than what we know, more than stream of consciousness. Here, also manner of speech to stream of consciousness, yes, of course. Yeah. But in addition, you're saying the way people actually talk. You right, know? right. And right. so the writer formally, again, you spoke of James earlier, the formal approach, you know. And so... Along comes Tom Wolfe with his writings. I know uh, this has, of course, been the subject of a great deal of discussion and controversy, and Tom does have his put-downers, too. I happen to be uh, one of his uh, most devoted, really. I mean, I'm most ardent boosters. I'm very excited about his approach. It's uh, particularly in this time in which we live. Uh, maybe it's always been so, but at least it's a discovery now that there are certain ways in which people talk. True, we have tape recorders and technology, and unless we... Why do something that is a formal, unnatural, untrue, really? It's an art, of course, but untrue in that it doesn't reflect the actual life, thought and, and the voice and the sound and the imagination. A good ex one of the reasons, this may seem like a, a pretty, going out into left field to get into this, a point, but one of the reasons the Arabs lost the war in the Middle East was that they're illiterate. Now, why, are the, why is there so much illiteracy in these countries? It's because there has been this ancient class split in language. And to this day, literacy is one of the sacred preserves 
of the upper classes. And one of the things that distinguishes you from the great mass of humanity is the fact that you can read the language and write the language, and there's just not many, a very low percentage of uh, people in Arabic countries can do this. And there is this, in other words, language writing has had this priestly Mm-hmm. cast to it. It's true in, in China also, and one of the reasons China was backwards for so long is that written language was kept out of the hands of the plebes. Now, you'd think that this would never be true in this country or, uh, or even in England at this late date in history, but it is. There's still this uh, ancient split, class split, and who who uses language in a certain way, and it's just been going on. And France is even worse than, than we are, or, um, or England. And the status structure's been like this. At the top, there's been the novel. And the novelists and playwrights and poets, to some extent, have always been the holy beasts. They're the people who have exclusive rights to the realm of uh, the spirit. In second place has been the gentleman amateur essayists the Hazlitts and Lambs, the Mencken, Shaw, uh, all sorts of Bergson, Santayana, the philosophers, these kind of people, the Walter Lippmanns, etc. Third place, but way down the list, practically in the last rung of the ladder, have been newspaper men, reporters, and who were considered as kind of dray horses who come up with some raw facts for these higher intellects to make use of. And people like magazine writers weren't even in the game. They were just out of the ball game completely. They were, you know, I don't know who's the comedian who has this line about how the way he pays his bills, he, t- he takes all the bills and he shuffles them, puts them into five piles face down, he turns up the top bill on each pile, and whatever bill is the lowest, he starts paying in that pile first, and he writes his, if he gets a bad letter from a creditor, he writes him back and saying, and, and listen, if I get another letter from you all like I did last month, I'm not even going to let you in the ball game. Well, this is the way magazine writing has always been. Magazine writers have always been purveyors of brain candy. That's the way it was. Well, there was this actual social snobbery involved in that. The gentleman, the people in the second rank, the gentleman amateur essayists, the philosophers and whatnot, it was considered that they were dirtying their hands by doing reporting, by actually going out and, uh, and talking to all these people that you have to talk to to get raw material. The idea was that if you're a reporter, you really put yourself at other people's mercy in most situations becomes very embarrassing. You have to put yourself to other people's schedule, and uh, you have to listen to all of their random thoughts. Uh, it can be embarrassing. It can be dangerous. It's just messy, yeah. and a gentleman shouldn't get involved. And a gentleman should write inside of a study lined with uh, leather books with leather spikes. Spines of course, as, as you're <coughs> talking, as Tom Wolfe's talking right now, a thought occurs to me. It's frightening. At the same time, it's true too that even the split now in our country, in so many ways, whether it be Chicago during the convention. Authority, capital A, and as against the untrammeled, free kind of spirit of those challenging it who felt powerless, wanted a voice, uh, certain candidates didn't make it, and the three candidates, particularly the third-party candidate, who has this certain kind of primitive appeal to the very ones who are alien to the novel, to the poet, you know, to the bard. And here, too, is this danger because of this very... Uh, because the, yeah, uh, the yeah. emptiness, the bleakness, the lack of poetry, and yet they have their own kind <coughs> if it could be dug into. <coughs> but you're digging it. Absolutely. The, uh, there's really no reason. It's partly you know, the fault of... Uh, if, if George Wallace and his followers hate intellectuals, it's partly the fault of intellectuals. So many intellectuals have allied themselves unconsciously with aristocracy. They, by their very 
snobbery of the taste of the intellectual. Um, the idea of even just a petty thing like only allowing brown bread in the house and not white bread. <laughs> you know, this is all part of a pattern of aristocratic snobbery, the sort of nostalgia for primitive things. You should have natural wood instead of plastic. Uh, you should uh, have wrought iron and not uh, bakelite or this kind of thing. It's all part of a, of a pattern in which dates back, you know, centuries, hundreds, uh, <laughs> hundreds. By the way, I think Tom is uh, right now touching on something that might also explain why it is that uh, he has his detractors, and I think he has many more, at least in, in my circle, uh, supporters, this very point that uh, his form is a form of this moment, too, perhaps long needed. It's a form that's come out as a result of technology, too, but his own thoughts and creativity, defining there is many, many subcultures, I hate to use that word, but many, many cultures going on, and it's not the East that has it all. It's not the magazines, which I happen to like very much, <clears throat> that doesn't tell it all, unfortunately, which may explain a great deal of the way we're going today, too. It's not digging into the psyche of this lower middle class guy what makes him tick and maybe one way or another getting to the little fire that may be in there that is so well, dulled. Studs, I don't mean to pelt you with bouquets, but you're one of the few people I know who has the interest, even the interest enough, to go out and just talk to all sorts of, uh, of people. That's why Division Street was such a great book. Well, uh, you look at what goes on in, in most television and uh, and shows in this country, for example, is this constant parade of big names on the screen, when actually there are all sorts of little names that would, who have things that would just oh knock God. your skull off oh if they told them God. to you. It'd be so fantastic, uh, the richness that is here on the streets, the creativity that is ignored. Again, celebrity. If we may, just mm. uh, thus far with Tom Wolfe, we've been touching upon his, his big mm -hmm. book, they're both books, but I mean the big one at the moment is is uh, the two books released, The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test that Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud uh, published, as well as the other book. I'd, I'd suggest both, by the way. We can talk a little about the Pump House Gang and other stories. This has an epilogue to it in which uh, Kesey is now back in Oregon writing, poor, ill-starred Cassidy is now dead in a crash. Yeah, and Cassidy, uh, <coughs> um, Cassidy died in Mexico. It's a very... Uh, tragic kind of thing. I'm glad to see, it, Cassie is a very fascinating figure, and I'm glad to see that there is a, a man named Charles Plywell who is now trying to bring together an anthology of memorabilia and other things about uh, Neil Cassidy, which would be a nice accompaniment to what is really Cassidy's biography on the road. Yeah. But I've come to the other book now, if we may, just for perhaps for another ten minutes or so. This is a two-installment program. This is part two of this conversation with Tom Wolfe and the Pump House Gang and other stories. Here again, the thing we just talked about earlier, the, uh, the uh, part of America ignored a great deal of banality involved here, but you, you catch a lot of nuances that others don't. Uh, you spoke earlier of the young, the surfers, and age segregation. You see it in California and everywhere. And, and this couple has not the vaguest day what's happening to them as these young opes, in a sense, kind of shove them aside. So segregation taking many mm -hmm. forms. You see it there that sense. Then you have the analysis, what I like called the mid-Atlantic man. The Englishman, often we find this in big cities and ad agencies or uh, um, big companies, the Englishman. And it's a marvelous study. Uh, he's, he's fated uh, so long as he has that 
I guess we still kind of look up to the English when these guys in these energy, he, he lends class, I guess. All, but the more he lives in America, the more American he becomes. Suddenly the waiter calls him by his first name and then he knows he's through. Yeah, well, the English today have their own class problems because they have all, they've been having their form of socialism for quite a few years, and yet the old class system just won't die. It's still going strong there, and uh, the same thing is true in Sweden, curiously enough. They hated Johansson because he, when he became heavyweight champion, he started taking on the trappings of a very wealthy aristocrat, big homes, big cars, and they, they said, you can't do this, you're a plebeian, it's not right. Well, England, it's, it's pretty much the same situation. And you get a lot of, say, well-educated, talented people from the middle classes, particularly the lower middle classes, who get into, say, advertising or show business, one thing and another, and they really feel that they have accomplished enough to reach the top socially, but nobody will let them in. So then they become enchanted with America because they say they travel to New York a lot. And they find that in America you can be just as gauche as you want and still win. You know, they can't believe it. You did everything wrong at supper last night. You used the wrong fork and you didn't. You, uh, you broke a glass and you left the room with the ladies when you should have stayed behind to smoke your cigar after dinner. You broke every rule. And yet tomorrow you're still ahead of... Uh, of IP and Q, the great industrial complex, and you're still making uh, 125000 a year, or whatever it may be, and that Americans can just commit all the gaucheries that would condemn you forever to perdition in England, and they still win. And they win, and they come to England, they do it, and they still win. This becomes very attractive. It's a way out of the class bind. And yet, many of them who try this, who try to Americanize themselves, take on American slang, and become breezy, uh, first name, dropping individuals uh, suddenly find that actually underneath it all they want to have their cake and eat it too they also want to be known as the suave ancient mm -hmm. aristocratic Englishman and when the day comes that they finally can't have it both ways that's pretty bad stuff they, uh, as you're saying here's the voice of a of a girl in England several years ago at a little club when Second City was an establishment in Chicago uh, this girl this English girl obviously is a climber not too much money but she wants to make it and her attitude is seemingly the opposite of the hero, <laughs> the anti-hero of the mid-Atlantic man who's this ad guy who became too American and suddenly lost. Here's her, as she's talking about America. If we could, her husband had a job here with an ad agency, and here are some of her comments about her experiences. But there was this ghastly underneath feeling that England was decadent. You know, it was rather shaming to be English, which was what went on. And I arrived there, and I felt a bit special. You know, I'd never been abroad before. And I arrived in this office on the Monday morning, and I, again, I felt special. You know, I just did. This is neither here nor there. But I walked in, and the janitor looked at me and said, my God, another bloody limey. So I said, well, yes, you know, I'm awfully sorry, but I am. But I got to know an awful lot about America while I was there. And the thing that I learned was that, although I think, obviously, you know you're terribly self-sufficient, obviously you are. I mean, you're way ahead in finance and everything else than we are. But there is an awful lot that can be learned. For instance, anybody who wanted a secretary said English. And we were there with the jobs. And this was not because we had the experience, it was because we had a feeling of responsibility. And we, we cared, 
about the jobs. This sounds awfully priggish, doesn't it? But it isn't. I mean, they wanted us, and this is what made it worthwhile staying. But when I came back, there was again the same sort of feeling. Now my husband works for an American firm, and we live in a 200-year-old Queen Anne cottage, which is falling down. We have a donkey, which is wandering about. We have a goat, which is falling down. We have a Labrador dog, which just had eight puppies, which is everywhere. You know, wherever you look, there are Labrador puppies. We have a white kitten, which has puppies. I mean, kittens every day. You know, there are kittens all over the place. But the Americans make it all possible. <laughs> but we are considered mad, but we're not mad, you know. These are the values. A house that you can live in, animals that you can love. These are the things that have been disregarded. And I'm sure these are the things that are important. Do you believe me? Do you mind if I ask you a, a personal question? You say, you, you owe this all to the Americans. You know, you were saying this. You know, your husband's job. Is there a little, well, note, is there a little note of uh, resentment, perhaps? No, we, we don't resent it at all. He, he came out of the Navy. He was a regular naval officer, and he decided he'd had enough. I mean, this is fair enough. And we started looking for investments, and I just happened to see this investment, which said two years in the States. And I said, absolutely super. I would love two years in America. You know. But it didn't happen. All right, it didn't happen. But I, I don't feel that I owe this to the Americans at all. Because their first adjective was, um, you're too English. So they didn't take him in America. Fair enough. I, I thought you'd get a kick out of this time, uh, her thoughts. In a way, it matches the guy, and yet underneath there is that. Oh, yeah, they... I think uh, Europe will s sink like the lost continent of Atlanta, still believing that, uh, that they are faced with these uh, barbarians across the ocean, <laughs> the Americans. Yeah, and they've, the got to sh they've, they've got to show them how to uh, yeah, The power. How to and live. This is one of your themes in The Mid-Atlantic Man, and, and uh, you have also uh, What's happening in all the subcultures, the, 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 the hair boys, and one on McLuhan, what if he is right, a kind of ambivalent piece about McLuhan, the put-together girl, and some very, uh, before I ask, uh, read a piece from the King of the Status Dropouts, uh, yeah, also a picture of the beautiful people, uh, Bob and Spike, what happens in the art world, the new, the new collectors, the new ones yeah, yeah. who made it. Oh, the, the art world in New York is now one of the great points of entry for social climbing. It used to be, the charity was a traditional one for years. Uh, the person who just comes in with a bundle of money wants to get in. But I think it's much, more, it's much more art now. Churches used to be, but they're not anymore. But if you can get into the, the whole collecting game, uh, you have a chance. But you have to collect, you have to collect avant-garde modern art because nobody can afford anything else anymore. The, I, don't th I think there are very few individuals who even afford minor masters of the 19th century. Their prices have gotten so incredibly high. So these people run a great economic risk because you say you, the comp when the competition for is for the latest work by a big name artist like Jim Dine or Frank Stella, one of these people. And the fact that you want the thing as hot out of the studio drives the price up at the studio. But then, unlike other works of art, Avant-garde art depreciates like a Cadillac once you buy it. It's like the, you know you, the Cadillac leaves a lot, and you've already lost three thousand uh, yeah. uh, dollars. 
The same so way it's the this. opposite of an old work uh, right. mounting right. in value. Now, it this may, uh, the you know, it may mount in value eventually, but that's the chance you take. But most people who are into this don't care about the, that part of it so much. This is the thing that gets you in, in close to important people on art committees. That's what it's all about. Of course, you have a classic, uh, not to read, and I hope you can permission to read. I'd love to read this on the air in some forthcoming program. Sure. Bob yeah. and Spike, the couple that made it. It's a fantastic study in American mores. And of course, there's Tom Wolfe's new book of etiquette. Perhaps a word about this, the parties, the reasons parties, and you speak of the monkey parties. Mm -hmm. This is part of an old tradition, but a new dimension here in the tossing of parties. Well, in New York particularly, and I dare say it's true other places, but I just know more about New York, the corporations even, and certainly business people of all sorts, have really taken over most most of the world of manners, and manners now serve a business in. And the, the classic monkey dinner that was given was given all around the turn of the century by Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish, who was so tired of the breakdown of what she considered proper uh, manners in New York at her day, that she gave a dinner down in her mansion in Gramercy Park for Count Del Drago. Well, and she invited all these people, and they all came, even though none of them had ever heard of Count Del Drago. And they come into her dining room, and there's the good count seated next to uh, Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish, and it's a baboon that she had hired and dressed up in a, in a tuxedo to make the point that people would just, if the party was given by the right person, yeah. no matter who it was for, they'd come for it. Well, now this monkey dinner idea is used in New York continually. A party will be organized around a celebrity, say, somebody, a famous artist, or uh, Leonard Bernstein, or whoever it might be. He's the guest of honor. Supposedly it's in his honor. But the real purpose of the party is to bring, say, somebody like a vinyl wallet manufacturer who has a lot of money. You want to make a deal with him. Nobody's ever heard of him. If you gave a party for him, nobody would come. So you give the party for Bernstein. You sit, you sit, you seat this uh, wallet manufacturer next to, uh, near Bernstein, next to his wife, let's say. And he, you just surround this man with this aura of all this uh, celebration and beautiful people. And he feels so great, you know, that now he's a part of this fantastic world. Well, it's a matter, it's a matter of art that different, different uh, stratum of different echelons. The top is the celebrity. Is that, you have it here somewhere, the top? Aren't the categories? Of, um, of oh, oh, yeah, the categories. Oh, there were, yeah. Well, Instead of the animal kingdom, steps on the animal kingdom. In, uh, I think someone in the party, you, you, In England, this thing was actually put into, yeah. some advertisers got a hold of this thing, ever had, actually had ratings. The ratings. For, uh, for people, I forget the categories, but it's something like, um, let's see. Uh, the celebrity and the The celebrity, C1s, yeah. I think were, um, C1s are actual celebrities yeah. who have a big enough name so yeah. that if you give a party for them, people will just come just, just to see them, no matter if they know them or not. Then there's a C2, as I believe is, or CIP might be a better way of putting it, commercially important yeah. people. Nobody's ever heard of them, yeah. but you should invite them yeah. to make them happy. Yeah. Uh, and then there are other various terms down probably nobody. <laughs> so these are the monkey parties with new dimension. And uh, perhaps just one, uh, much has been written about uh, the, the philosopher of uh, hedonism today, <laughs> king of the status dropouts. You explain, by the way, the nature of uh, Playboy. It's been written many times, the subject perhaps overwritten, and yet Wolf's is a very original one. I think his and Algren's to me are the two uh, best ones. The opening, the opening paragraph is very funny because you also speak, you pay in a way a, a perverse tribute in that he, 
uh, Hefner's formed his own league. He didn't go out anymore. He also pointing out the fact that people don't have to go out anymore, too. And he, in, in its, uh, perhaps its most uh, glamorous form, he doesn't go out anymore. Everything is there at home. Yeah, well, as I, see, as I see Hefner's position, it's that of a man who made a tremendous success out of his magazine, but without getting any of the social rewards that ordinarily would come with becoming a multimillionaire uh, in, in publishing. And the fact is that socially, I think, everyone of high social rank in Chicago still looks at Hugh Hefner uh, as a man that puts out a breast magazine. Yeah, I'm not too sure of that. Uh, see, well, uh, no, I mean, I mean, I'm not too sure whether they don't. See, he has now, in his own way, he has become a celebrity. Oh, well, in fact, no, his home is used very often by socialites. You know, the pad is. You see, that's very interesting. So it works two ways. You know. Well, he, I think, in response to this situation he found himself in, yeah. he did something that many people in this country are, in fact, doing. They don't have his resources, but one way or another, they're doing it. Instead of fighting the old social game and trying to get your children into the right schools and trying to go to the right shops and all the rest of it, uh, if you suddenly find you have enough money, why not start your own league, create your own world? And of course, Hefner has done that with his mansion. Uh, and for a long, long time, he was a, a virtual recluse who wouldn't, go, wouldn't leave there for months at a time. I found out why he didn't leave the other night when I understand he went out and he got hit in the back by a policeman <laughs> during the riots. Maybe that's why he doesn't go outside the house. But anyway, he, he had been staying in there, and uh, in the process, he had built up a fantastic world within the four walls of, uh, of his mansion, using all sorts of sophisticated equipment, which is something many people across the country find they can do. They can turn their, you can turn your home into a wonder world. And this is a great revelation to me because in... in this is interesting because you point this out. You use a phrase here, the lumpen middle class, rather interesting. It's an interesting phrase in that in that uh, the man who before had wanted to make it climb, and I, in his own way still wants to, but now he has the world. The television set is there, his uh, billiard uh, table is there, whatever he wants, and he's, in a way, he's simulating the upper classes all by himself at home. Without having to compete with all the, to compete. the kind of invisible uh, snobbery that goes with yeah. it. And you know, there used to be this term white collar and blue collar studs, and uh, Today it's changed. To me, it's white collar and sports shirt, because of uh, and it reflects the economics of the thing. Whereas it used to be that a white shirt would cost five dollars and a blue shirt uh, cost two dollars. Today, the white shirt costs eight ninety five, but the sports shirt that the lower orders, the non-educated caste, the sports shirts cost thirty dollars. Of course, he's the guy too. Incidentally, this is often the labor union man. Uh, and we're not talking about the valleys of poverty that are here that Michael Harrington exposed that we know. Of. We're talking about the relatively affluent majority. And so he's making his 10, 12 grand a year. And here again, we also come to the political aspect of it too. These things that he has, these things must be protected. But in a different way, if I just read this piece about the opening of this chapter on the king of the status dropouts, 
39 years old, a recluse, bona fide, doesn't go out, doesn't see the light of day, doesn't put his hide out, God's own unconditioned, when he doesn't put his hide out in God's own unconditioned Chicago air for months on end, years, right this minute, one supposes, he's somewhere there in the innards of those 48 rooms under layers and layers of white wall-to-wall, crimson wall-to-wall, Count Basie lounge leather, muffled, baffled, swaddled, shrouded, closed in, blacked out, shielded by curtains, drapes, wall-to-wall, blonde wood, screens, cords, doors, buzzers, dials, Nubians. He's down in there, the living Hugh Hefner, 150 pounds, like the tender timpani green heart of an artichoke. He's revolving counterclockwise <laughs> in his bed. And then you tell, very funny, of course, the matter of gadgets and dials. This, is, this perhaps is worth reading out loud, too, on a forthcoming program. Mm. And toward the end of this book, which again, Tom Wolfe so uh, makes vivid, uh, the world. Some of the young know, some don't. Uh, the half world, the commercial world, but the world underneath is the autumn. The world that conventioneers go to, to view at the automated hotel, too. That's almost a, a you know, the, the shape of things to come. Your own experience, I think. Oh yeah, I, this.